welcome to Hitting Play, the podcast where we review, analyze, and discuss shows, movies, and other curiosities. I am Scott, and joining me this week in the Hitting Play Aerodrome is Steve. Steve, welcome back. Oh, thank you. It's good to be back. I'm, well, surpri- I'm surprised, actually, that I am back after all the uh, after all of the episodes I've tortured you with. <laughs> yes, please go back in our archives and look for Quark and Galactica 1980 and some horrible things if you want to torture yourself. And Lancelot Link, secret ship. <laughs> oh, how could I forget? <laughs> <laughs> well, this week we're taking a look back at a, an often forgotten chapter in the Indiana Jones story. And it's the early 1990s TV series that really served as kind of a prequel to the then-movie trilogy. It's a show called The Young Indiana Jones Chronicles, or at least that was its name when it aired. Uh, This series originally aired on ABC for 24 episodes over two seasons from March 4th, 1992 to July 24th, 1993. Uh, There were also an additional four episodes that remained unaired after it was canceled. And the following year, maybe a little over a year after it was canceled, the Family Channel uh, produced more episodes, and those were actually packaged into four TV films. And those films aired from October 15th, 1994 to June 16th, 1996. They were really spaced out. Now, more specifically for this week's episode of the podcast, we're watching the episode, I believe it's called Ravenel France 1917. And this is really the first half of one of those TV movies, but really it's a standalone episode. Yes, I, I, I believe they put together uh, some of those uh, TV movies by combining uh, related uh, episodes that aired separately. Yeah. It almost looks like they commissioned an extra eight and then decided that they were just going to air them as four TV movies, kind of uh, try to seamlessly stitch them together. So basically, we watched uh, a TV movie called Attack of the Hawkmen that originally aired on October 8th, 1995. But really, we're going to focus on the first half of it, which, like I said, I believe it's called Ravenel France 1917. Uh, This episode was written by Matthew Jacobs, Rosemary Ann Sisson, and Ben Burt, and directed by Ben Burt. And do you know who Ben Burt is, Steve? I have no idea, unless he's from Sesame Street. No, he's better known as the sound designer for the Star Wars films. Ah! Yes, there's a lot of, because obviously George Lucas was uh, involved in the production of this series, so there's a lot of Star Wars connections, uh, even in this episode. Yes. So he's the guy that made all the lightsaber sounds and voiced R2-D2 and all that great stuff. Yes, uh, there, were, there were a surprising number of uh, lightsabers in the First World War. <laughs> None in this episode, unfortunately. Ah, uh, well. <laughs> so for this episode of the podcast, if you want to follow along with us, this one is a little trickier than most. Uh, it's only officially available right now on DVD. And we're going to focus, like I said, on the first half of Attack of the Hawkmen, and that's from Volume 2, the second box set. It's also confusing because when you put the DVD in, it's alternatively titled Chapter 12, Austria 1917, which I don't think this is Austria 1917. Uh, No, it's not. The Austria 1917 actually uh, refers to another episode in which uh, Indy and uh, two French agents travel to Austria undercover to meet with uh, the Emperor Karl I, who is known as the Peace Emperor, for his efforts to uh, negotiate a separate peace that would have taken Austria-Hungary out of the war early. 
this was a real effort. There really were agents uh, that did do this, but of course, uh, you know, failed in all of their efforts when uh, they were made public uh, by the Allies. Ironically, we're kind of having trouble describing the actual name of the episode because, like most things George Lucas worked on, he had to make changes after the fact. So, for these DVD box sets, even aside from the TV movies, most of the episodes were also combined and renamed. And there's other changes, there's various edits. Like, there was actually an old man indie, like Indiana Jones in the 1990s, as a 93 year old man who bookended a lot of the episodes. Uh, a lot of those were cut out. Yes, a lot of a lot of uh, fans of the series really uh, were upset when uh, when the episodes were reformatted and combined. It's the whole series was combined into two into two hour movies. Yeah, and uh, when they did that, they cut out all of the uh, scenes with the old indie, which actually, in my opinion, was a good thing because <laughs> they were they were done as almost comic relief with a senile old man telling these unlikely stories to, you know, young kid. It just really didn't work. <laughs> so I was I was actually glad that they cut the old indie out. Yeah. This series basically from what I read it was restructured into three volumes for home video. Volume one became known as the early years. Volume two, which is uh in which this episode that we're talking about is in is called The War Years, and Volume 3 is The Years of Change. Uh, by the time the series concludes, the character of Indiana Jones is about 21 years old. Uh, Lucas has, had actually plotted out his entire timeline until Indy was about 24. But like, you know, like we said, it got canceled before he saw the end of this. Uh, the strict timeline that was written out it really was Indiana Jones' complete life, starting with his birth, which is revealed in the series, uh, reported to be July 1st, 1899, and it goes right through the feature film trilogy, and then, like I said, moments with 93-year-old Indy, then present day. Uh, but the show's writers, they had this outline, and they were able to really write these episodes out, you know, based on Lucas's plotting, without contradiction, and with incredibly precise historical accuracy, as we'll get into. Yes, yeah. They, they did have some historical inaccuracies, uh, but where they did occur, uh, at least in this episode, there were instances of poetic license rather than ignorance. Right. Um, so, so, they, so when I do point historical inaccuracies out, they're actually not that bad. The greatest historical inaccuracy that I've found in the entire series, uh, admittedly I haven't watched the, uh, the third box set yet, but the, uh, the greatest historical inaccuracy was, uh, has to do with uh, the, the reference to the Battle of Verdun. Uh, in an earlier episode, uh, in the first box set, when Indy is uh, in Princeton, New Jersey, because that's, of course, where his father is, uh, is a teacher, mm -hmm. He's a professor of history at, at Princeton. He's seen on a uh, on a porch at the family home uh, reading a, a newspaper with a headline about the Battle of Verdun. Well, later on, after he joins the uh, Belgian uh, military, is when the historic Battle of Verdun actually takes place. So, technically, if you follow excruciatingly the timeline, he's in two places at the same time. <laughs> so, but. That's the largest gasp that I've found. That's not bad, considering. Yeah, especially since it, the, 
in the uh, Princeton, New Jersey episode. That was just kind of a background detail. It had nothing to do with the uh, story except that World War One was underway. Yeah. It's funny because looking back at this series and seeing care that was taken to make sure that the Indiana Jones canon is historically accurate and it all flows through, you know, and then you see Kingdom of the Crystal Skull kind of ruin everything here. Well, that was, that was all historically accurate, wasn't it? <laughs> well, I mean, you could say the other movies, too, didn't really reflect history, but that one really rubbed fans the wrong way, you know? No, I don't know. So, I mean, it, it was a little bit before my time. It was really from the uh, 1950s that they had the civil defense uh, drills and everything. But, I mean, even though I didn't witness them personally, I, I remember references to, you know, uh, to stop, drop, and refrigerate in case of a nuclear blast. <laughs> All right, so let's not end our backstory of this series on a sour note. On the bright side, I should mention that this was a very well-made a generally very well-received series. Uh, it received 18 Emmy nominations and won six. It also received a Golden Globe nomination in 1994 for Best Series in the Drama category. It really was very well done. And when Lucas made it, it was with the uh, objective of actually being an educational series. In fact, when the uh, series was released on DVD, each episode is accompanied with one or two documentaries that he made to provide background detail on the events covered in each episode. So there really was a lot of attention to historical accuracy, both in terms of plot and also in terms of, uh, of technology, of, uh, of costumes. It was really very well done. Yeah, and it's funny, you think, while well, he put them together as these chapters, he even uh, took the episodes and reordered them chronologically. That's why this uh, TV movie, I believe, is also known as Chapter 12, because they do kind of skip around in the timeline, but he wanted those all restructured uh, back in, uh, in chronological order. Uh, that's a lot of time for a classroom to put <laughs> towards watching this yeah, show. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I was thinking about that. I'm like, yeah, if they showed this at school, this would have been like half the week. I would have loved this. Oh, yeah, it would have been terrific. And when they first aired, the way it worked was they had uh, the young, young Indiana Jones, which started off the first episode was with Indy, who's maybe 10 years old or so, and uh, traveling with his father around the world. Uh, his father's on a lecture tour. So when he's uh, about 10 years old, he's being taken to all of these exotic locations. Then, of course, there's the older Indy, uh, with the war years and the years of change, well, each week they would alternate between Indies. So there'd be one with them very young, you know, in, in Egypt meeting Howard Carter and T.E. Lawrence. Uh, and then the next week it would be uh, the older Indy on some other adventure, huh. uh, like in uh, like meeting Freud in Austria. So And then the next week it would be back to the young Indy uh, meeting Teddy Roosevelt on safari in Africa. So it would jump back and forth between the, the two ages and the uh, the two actors betraying him. Interesting. Yeah, I, I figured we got, what, five different actors playing Indiana Jones total? Something like that? Uh, I think four. Because we, we got the kid and we have the older Indy. As five, yes. River Phoenix actually played the young Indy in the movies. That's right. That's right. So, yes, there are five. The two from the young Indiana Jones Chronicles, River Phoenix, Harrison Ford, and then the old guy. Old man Indy. Kind of like old man Logan. 
But it's funny because uh, from what I read too, they offered this this role to River Phoenix. You know, they really wanted to keep the canon somewhat consistent and say, hey, let's get the young Indiana Jones from the films to be the young Indiana Jones in the series. And River Phoenix basically wanted nothing to do with uh, moving to television, which really, you know, until very recently, that was seen as a step backwards for an actor's career. Yeah, yeah now, now not at all. All right, so we get a lot to get to, even though we're doing, you know, the first half of this. So let's get right into this. Uh, we start with the Paramount and Lucasfilm logos. Of course, the very famous Lucasfilm logo, if you're a Star Wars fan. Uh, this was a joint production between Paramount and Lucasfilms. It aired on ABC, but was released on CBS Home Video. So figure all that out. Uh, we open on Paris as alarms are sounded and lights are beamed into the night sky, and through the clouds a German airship emerges as we get the title, Attack of the Hawkmen. Now the airship takes fire and responds by dropping bombs, uh, we see the citizens run to the closest shelter, and in a nearby building we see the young Indiana Jones, played here by Sean Patrick Flannery. Uh, he's, uh, I don't know if you ever seen the movie Powder? <laughs> This is powder. I must have missed that. Good, good. Do do not watch it. <laughs> It'll ruin the show for me. Eh? <laughs> yes. Uh, so we we get Sean Patrick Flannery here as Indy uh, writing a letter to someone named Ned, and this letter is dated February second, nineteen seventeen. Now, now, Steve, who was Ned? Ned. There are actually a couple of interesting things already just from the opening uh, scene. Uh, of this episode. Ned actually is uh, refers to uh, T.E. Lawrence, better known as uh, Lawrence of Arabia, wow. who was indeed called Ned by his friends. Uh, now, as I mentioned before, in the first episode of the Young Indiana Jones Chronicles, the young Indy was traveling with his father and was in Egypt, where he met uh, Howard Carter, the, uh, the Egyptologist who uh, excavated a King Tut's tomb, and also he met a younger T.E. Lawrence, who was at that point cycling through uh, the, uh, the Near East doing a survey of Crusader castles uh, in the area. And so they struck up a, a friendship at that point, and uh, he maintained his contact with uh, Lawrence throughout the uh, shows. So he periodically does show up. Hmm either in correspondence or in a couple of episodes, he actually does uh, show up again uh, and meets up with uh, Indy during the war years. Now, in addition to this, on the, uh, in the Zeppelin raid, one nice historical detail that you may have noticed is as the Zeppelins are approaching Paris uh, to bomb the city, uh, you'll notice there's a sort of gondola, sort of reverse periscopic gondola that's lowered from the uh, airship. Mm-hmm. That's actually historically accurate. Huh. Uh, the, the German Zeppelins during the uh, First World War were faced with the problem of how to navigate when uh, conditions were overcast, uh, because if there was uh, if there was cloud cover, they couldn't see the landmarks, which were how all aircraft navigated. It was actually by looking down at the road network and at landmarks. They didn't have the ability to navigate uh, as they did, you know, later in the uh, in the Second World War. So if you couldn't see the ground, you couldn't navigate. And if cloud cover drove a zeppelin too low, it became very vulnerable to anti-aircraft fire. So the Germans developed a sort of uh, gondola that they would lower on a cable from the uh, from the airship to dip down below the clouds, allowing the, the ship itself to remain above the clouds and, and say, from anti-aircraft fire. Huh. 
of course, this wasn't necessarily the most enviable duty on, of the crew. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Being dipped down into uh, anti-aircraft fire. And there were, of course, incidents of them lowering the uh, gondola and the, you know, getting the directions from the navigator through a, a telephone line, only later to crank up the cable to find no gondola at the end of it. So it wasn't necessarily the, the, the best uh, duty. The real secret, uh, not getting killed was the real secret of the uh, benefits package there. <laughs> wow. So, yeah, it was like a, like a crow's nest on a pirate ship, but only down below instead of up top. Exactly. Interesting. Now, we should pause, too, to mention that, like I said, this letter to, to Ned was dated February 2nd, 1917. Uh, so the story that we're covering here takes place exactly 100 years ago. At one point, at some point in the story, it's going to be exactly to the day that we're recording. Uh, just a timestamp that we're recording this on February 27th, and uh, this takes place uh, through uh, February and early March 1917. Pretty amazing. Yes. Yes, so the first two weeks of uh, March. So, anyway, uh, back to the episode. Uh, Indy explains in his letter that he's now in France after leaving the African front, and after his experiences there, he's determined to do whatever he can to stop the war. So him and his friend, uh, Remy Baudouin, have joined the Belgian Intelligence Corps. Now, there are a couple of episodes where, uh, where Indy and uh, Remy do fight in Africa, which is one of the certainly lesser-known uh, areas of uh, conflict or theaters of operation of the First World War. Most people really think of the First World War and think of the Western Front. Yeah. However, that's one thing that they do really well in this series is indie tours really pretty much every active front, uh, every active theater of combat of the war. Of course, being in the uh, Belgian military, he travels uh, across the Congo. He uh, fights uh, the German East African army uh, along with the, uh, when he's seconded to the uh, South African military. And in fact, that's the, that's the only German army in the war that was never defeated. Uh, it ended up uh, surrendering, but unbeaten hmm. at the end of the war. Uh, he also uh, goes to uh, Palestine, fights in Palestine, I believe in Mesopotamia. He, uh, he goes to Constantinople, he's in uh, Petrograd. So he really does cover the entire war uh, in, in his uh, military career. So areas that people are not used to hearing about and that many people have never heard about are really on display in this. So they do a great survey of, of the history of the Great War. And you could see where Lucas got the idea that this would be helpful, you know, that this could be an educational tool as well. No, absolutely. So like I mentioned, he and Remy, they've joined the uh, Belgian intelligence, and he was trained to be a spy in a classroom, and we get a montage showing us a little bit of this class with Remy, and we can see it's very poorly organized, and we're told by Indy that the whole program is considered a joke compared to those of the British or the French, and as an example, we see Indy get handed an invisible message from the, I don't know, kind of portly, stout Remy, and uh, the... the message actually reveals that he's hungry. He writes, I'm hungry on the uh, the sheet. <laughs> yes. R Remy almost reminds me of uh, of the cartoon character uh, Wimpy from uh, from Popeye. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a little bit of that with, with a French accent. <laughs> but with a Belgian accent. 
That's right, he is Belgian. <laughs> so Indy's really fed up. He's determined, well, they're going to transfer to the French. And uh, as he wraps up the letter, it's now morning, and Indy hands Remy two documents that he had forged. One from the French, requesting that they join the French army, and the other from the Belgians, requesting that they join the French. And he asks Remy to deliver them, uh, but fearing the risk of being put in jail, he refuses. Uh, Indy quotes Albert Schweitzer, saying, Good is that which promotes life. Evil is that which destroys it. And he quotes from memory because, while crossing the Congo, Indy and Remy did indeed meet Albert Schweitzer. That's what I figured. <laughs> <laughs> and, and in the end, Indy and Remy aren't actually transferred to the, to the French uh, intelligence service. They are actually seconded to them. So they do remain members of the Belgian army, ah. but on service with the French uh, Secret Service. I see. Because, because just to explain a little bit of the backstory, mm-hmm. <laughs> because there's loads of backstory. Oh, yes. Uh, it, it, it may seem kind of odd that they're in the uh, Belgian military. Well, this is because uh, Indiana Jones, uh, as mentioned in the movies, did run away from home. Uh, when he ran away from home, he uh, headed to uh, Mexico, where he uh, joined up with Pancho Villa, and met Remy, who was an idealist uh, fighting with the uh, Mexican revolutionaries. They became disenchanted with the uh, revolutionary movement, and that's when they decided to join up and uh, fight in the uh, First World War. Indy first tried to join the uh, British Army, but was uh, turned away because he was underage. And uh, so he decided to uh, try the Belgian army, since that's uh, since Remy was a Belgian citizen, had joined up. And so throughout this, he poses as uh, young Henri de France. <laughs> of course, Henri being the, uh, the French equivalent of Henry, and de France being uh, the word defense with a French accent, because when he was stumped for a last name, he saw defense on a uh, poster and uh, blurted it out. <laughs> so, so he is Captain Henri Defense of the uh, Belgian Army. Yes, yes. We're going to hear him being referred to as Captain Defense many times throughout this episode. It's just so funny to see Indiana Jones, even as a, a kid, you know, a young man, just going everywhere around the world. It's basically like a historically accurate Forrest Gump. <laughs> I prefer to think of it as a you were there. <laughs> well, then then I don't get to use my life as like a box of Belgian chocolates joke, but that's okay. Uh, that's it. That's very okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so with that knowledge now, uh, Indy is trying to join up with the French from the Belgians. Uh, Remy is very reluctant because he thinks that these forged documents will never work, but he does agree he's going to help his friend. He's going to give it a shot. Remy is always very reluctant, always shocked into things by Indy against his better judgment. <laughs> but of course, it, it'll work. You know it will. <laughs> so we cut to Indy and Remy in uniform, preparing to meet with the French. And, and again, Remy repeats the line, this will never work. So a French official enters the office, looks at their papers, you know, addresses them by the names Remy Baudouin and to Indy, of course, Captain Defense. He tells them that their records with the Belgians are outstanding, especially the forged signature and the letter of transfer. And uh, after Indy and Remy kind of share this uncomfortable glance, he continues with a smile saying, we can use men like you. Of course. Yes. Uh, pr- 
proving once again the inestimable value of the friendly scriptwriter. <laughs> yes. <laughs> So he asks them about their abilities, what they can do, and, you know, if they're a good cook. And Remy admits, yeah, I'm a good cook. And Indy, uh, though saying he can only boil an egg, has plenty of flying experience. And keep in mind, even though he's saying this, he hates flying. <laughs> he didn't say he liked it. Yeah. So after the French official leaves to speak with his commander, Indy tells Remy that, you know, you never should have admitted being a good cook. They're going to make you do housekeeping. So when the official returns, he tells Remy that he is returning to his home in Belgium, where he's going to be the new proprietor of the Café Noir in Brussels and serve as the main contact with the White Lady, which is what they called the Belgian Underground. And Remy is quite pleased with this great assignment. Uh, Indy, on the other hand, does not have a real assignment. He's being sent back to the Western Front for two weeks for photographic reconnaissance. Yes. So, of course, uh, yeah, this is going to involve a lot of flying. So from here, we cut to Indy, ready to leave for his new assignment. Uh, before he leaves, we get this moment where he encounters Remy, who is now known as Albert. Uh, he's wearing a hat and a fur-trimmed coat, dressed very nicely. And uh, before Indy leaves in a truck, uh, Remy gives him a hug and thanks him for everything. So now Indy and Remy part ways, unsure if they're ever going to see each other again. And uh, as Indy's truck drives off, Indy shouts to him to stay alive. And this is where they cue uh, an instrumental version of The Minstrel Boy, uh, an old uh, Irish tune, which, which would seem kind of out of place, given that this is an American and a Belgian in the French Secret Service. Yeah. However, uh, it's actually uh, an old Irish song that became uh, popular during this time in the post-war years, was actually to this day uh, played annually at the National Service of Remembrance on Remembrance Sunday at the uh, Cenotaph in London. The Cenotaph, of course, being the uh, the British uh, memorial to the uh, to the dead of the uh, First World War. It's actually appropriate in that sense. Wow, that's amazing! How also, crazy they go with the details it, here. Uh, also, you know, tugs at the heartstrings too. Sure, sure. This is a, a very touching moment. You know, obviously, the two have had some history up to this point in the series, and now they're going to part ways. <clears throat> so cutting to the back of the truck, Indy is asked where he's heading. He replies, the 124th Squadron at Ravenel. Yes, he, the legendary Lafayette Escadrille. Yes. And there's our reference to Ravenel, France, which is the kind of name of the episode. Yes, the, the uh, Lafayette Escadrille is, is as I say, a, a legendary unit. Um, it's uh, Escadrille, of course, it's French for squadron. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's a squadron that was comprised of American volunteers who wanted to uh, fight in the war before the United States actually entered the hostilities. So uh, 38 Americans actually volunteered, traveled to France, and joined up the uh, French uh, air service and fought under the uh, French flag. Now, the squadron was named in honor of the Marquis de Lafayette, the French nobleman who joined uh, George Washington as an advisor during the Revolutionary War, contributing greatly to the cause of American independence. Now, uh, American participation in the Great War, both you know formally after the declaration of war and informally in the form of these uh, volunteers that went over, was popularly seen as repayment of a debt of honor to France for uh, the Marquis de Lafayette's service. For instance, on his arrival in Paris, leading the advanced units of the American Expeditionary Force, 
commanding general John Blackjack Pershing famously declared, Lafayette, nous sommes ici, which means uh, Lafayette, we are here. Hmm. Now, the Lafayette Escadrille itself, the, there was the Lafayette Escadrille and the Lafayette Flying Corps, because not all American volunteer pilots uh, flew in this squadron. There were some that were scattered throughout French, uh, other French squadrons. All Americans who served in the French Flying Service were considered members of the Lafayette Flying Corps. But the Escadrille was originally organized under the name the Escadrille Américain uh, in March of 1916, roughly a year uh, before Indy joins it. It was, however, redesignated uh, in December of that year, just three months before Indy shows up, due to diplomatic protests by the Germans. The Germans had protested to the American government that having a uh, squadron in the uh, French air service known as the American Squadron implied that the United States was not, in fact, truly neutral in the war. So the United States exerted diplomatic pressure on France to change the name of the squadron, and thus the Lafayette Escadrille was born. Oh, I see. Yeah. In all, a total of 265 American pilots flew either for the Escadrille or the uh, Lafayette Flying Corps. The four, they were disbanded and incorporated into the United States Air Service upon American entry into the war. There was also a movie called Flyboys with James Franco, which kind of covered the, uh, I, I think it was more of the, the Lafayette Flying Corps than the Escadrille, but I think there was also kind of some blending of details, so it's not as historically accurate. I think this is probably one of the best representations uh, of these men that you'll probably get to see in, you know, in popular culture anyway. Yeah, yeah, it's it's really, uh, as we go through it, it's remarkable the amount of, uh, of historical detail that they did get right with this. They really paid attention to, to uh, what was going on. And just as an aside, anyone who's interested in this time and, and about these pilots, you can find online some of the uh, memoirs of pilots uh, from the First World War. For instance, uh, Eddie Rickenbacker, who never flew with the Escadrille, but only flew after the United States entered the war. His memoirs are online are fascinating to read. Uh, they're, they're easily found through a Google search as an e-text, and to just read online, they're fascinating. As, as he describes the whole process of being trained as a pilot, his first flights, and of course, uh, Rickenbacker went on to become America's uh, greatest ace of the uh, First World War. Yeah, and flying at this stage of uh, you know, the, the 20th century was very, very risky. And so the soldiers are just laughing at Indy's assignment, saying that it's safer to fight in the trenches than you know, flying around for his assignment. Honestly, when you think about it, the soldiers in the trenches, they have trenches to protect them. There was no protection whatsoever for a pilot. They were basically the equivalent of of lawn chairs in the sky with machine guns. Yeah, there was there was no cover. Uh, they were afforded no protection by by the aircraft, which literally were wood, canvas, an engine, and a machine gun, and that was it. Unbelievable. So the uh, they were very uh, they they were very dangerous. So as Indy's truck finally arrives at its destination, the Lafayette Escadrille Aerodrome, we see the sign for the Lafayette Escadrille, number 124. Uh, pulling in, we see the French and U.S. flags, a number of aircraft, they're parked and in flight. The, uh, the Escadrille uh, insignia is a, of a Native American head, too. We'll notice that. That's obviously historically yes. accurate as well. Yes, very famous. 
Uh, this is actually the uh, first potential inaccuracy. I wasn't able to establish whether it was inaccurate or not, but I strongly suspect it was the fact that there was an American flag flying there. Yeah, yeah. That that would imply official American participation in the war, where they had to even change the name of the squadron. I doubt if it would have been tolerated uh, an American flag in a French military unit. Again, I, I can give a certain amount of uh, poetic license that it seems clearly intended to signal to the viewers this is a Franco-American unit, which it was, combining both American pilots and a handful of uh, French pilots as well. Yeah, really just driving the point home. You're going to see a, a blend of people from the two countries. Yes. And it's funny, as Indy's dropped off, he's warned the Americans are a crazy bunch. And yeah, right away he sees things are a little crazy as he's greeted by a lion cub named Whiskey, who is the squadron mascot. And Whiskey actually is a historically accurate character. I couldn't believe it. I actually did the research on this, and I saw a picture of the real Whiskey. I couldn't, I couldn't believe it was real. They actually kept a lion cub. Yes, he was a, a tame lion cub. Uh, he was born on a freighter from Africa to France. He was uh, encountered by uh, pilots from the uh, Lafayette Escadrille while on leave in Paris, uh, who bought him as a mascot. So it was a tame lion cub that they named Whiskey uh, <laughs> for his fondness for an occasional saucerful of whiskey. Oh, no. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that, that, that was part of the taming, apparently, as they shared some of their whiskey with him. Uh, he liked that. So they, they kept him. Later on, he was uh, joined by his counterpart, a, a lioness, uh, whom they named Soda because she went so well with whiskey. Yes. <laughs> they, they were indeed the uh, squadron's mascot and uh, reportedly followed uh, one of the pilots, uh, Raoul Lufberry, whom Indy meets immediately, uh, followed him around like a, like dog. And uh, But after the war... Both Whiskey and Soda were retired to a uh, Paris zoo where they lived out the rest of their lives. Well, that's good, at least. They were taken care of. <laughs> yes, but I, 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 like you, I, I immediately humped in on, okay, was this authentic <laughs> or was this, oh, just an illustration of, oh, those wacky Americans? Yeah. But yes, it was historically accurate. So I, even able to find biographical detail on the line. Wow, that's crazy. Yeah, go to go to Wikipedia and look up, look up the uh, Lafayette Escadrille. You'll see, I think in that article is a picture of whiskey and soda together. Yeah, yes, absolutely fascinating article. So yeah, as you mentioned, the first human he meets is the uh, flying ace Raoul Lufberry, and uh, he is a a French a French American, right? He's American born French pilot, I believe. Yes, yes, he was um, uh, Raoul Lufberry was an American ace who was uh, born to, um, I believe, a French mother and an American father. Okay. Uh, his mother died while he was young. Well, he was very young. I believe he wasn't even uh, a year old when his mother died. And his father left him in the care of his uh, French grandparents. So he was raised, actually, in France, but he later served with the uh, U.S. military in, um, in the Philippines. And then uh, with the war, he, uh, he went and to serve with the uh, with the French military. He actually, in, in the one inaccuracy in this episode, is uh, that he speaks English 
you know, with an American accent. Yeah. But historically, actually, he uh, apparently spoke with a heavy French accent. Okay. Yeah, that would make much more sense. Yes. But uh, the historical Raoul Lufbery, uh, as I say, he was an American ace. He eventually scored 17 of the squadron's total 39 confirmed kills before being killed in action in May of 1918. Uh, he's the pilot who trained Eddie Rickenbacker, America's leading ace of the Great War. Now, this episode, throughout it, sort of suggests Lufbery was the commanding officer of the squadron. Mm-hmm. This being a French military unit, it was always uh, commanded by a, a French officer. Later, when the United States entered the war, Lufbery was, uh, was transferred to the American Air Service, where he commanded the American 94th Squadron, which he commanded until his death in May of 1918, when he, uh, when he was killed, when he unfastened his seatbelt in his plane. It's not clear. It, uh, the details of his death aren't clear. Some claim that he jumped from the plane, the U.S. military concluded that what actually happened was he had unfastened his seatbelt to clear a jam in his machine gun mm-hmm. and was ejected from the plane when it flipped over in the air, yeah. casting him to the ground where actually he landed on a metal picket garden fence below. Oh, my goodness. Now, it's not clear whether this is what really happened or if this was just um, to, to polish things, you know, to, to clean things up because it wasn't unusual for pilots to jump to their deaths from, from these planes, because until very late in the war, parachutes, though they were certainly known, were not issued to as standard equipment to fighter pilots. Oh, wow. I'm not sure exactly why not. I believe part of it was that it was kind of seen as a potential coward's way out. But the reason that pilots would sometimes jump even without parachutes is that if their plane was hit by enemy fire, they were flying in basically, as I say, glorified lawn furniture in the air, surrounded by wood and canvas covered with paint Mm. uh, behind an engine with gasoline and oil in it. So fire was not unusual. If if there was a fire uh, as a result of the engine being damaged, the engine, of course, was in front of them. So when when the if the plane was burning, the flames were going in one direction. Uh, it's back at the pilot. Now, they try to, to blow out the flames by doing a series of side-flip maneuvers, which sometimes worked. But if it didn't, the pilots were faced with a choice of being burned to death in their plane or leaping to their death. And so many pilots, given that choice, if they didn't feel they could get the plane on the ground quickly enough, did leap to their death. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's kind of grim, but... That's the truth of air combat during the, the Great War. Now, I'm a little bit little bit skeptical of the gun-cleaning story just because Lufbery was renowned for being very painstaking about, uh, about guns because he didn't want uh, his gun to jam in, in a key moment in combat to the point that he assiduously polished the individual bullets that went into the, uh, to the machine gun. Oh, wow. Well. Uh, his ammunition supply, obviously, you know, in between missions. Yeah, yeah. He wasn't polishing them in the air. So, you know, take what you will from that, whether he uh, whether he jumped or uh, was ejected. Wow. Well, I mean, right away, even in this story, we could see how hazardous these missions were 
because uh, Lufberry is showing Indy around and he kind of hints, Indy kind of picks up from what he's saying that he is a replacement photographer. And, uh, you know, he shows him, yeah, this is your, uh, your gear from the, from the other guy. Yeah. In fact, the, the mission of an aerial observer in these planes was actually very, very hazardous. In fact, it was probably the most hazardous duty there was during the war. The, the average life expectancy of an observer uh, was about 15 days. Yeah, in fact, in this episode where the men meet Indy, or Captain Defense, uh, as the replacement photographer, uh, Indy's like, yeah, you know, I'm only here for two weeks. It's kind of a temporary assignment. And they all kind of laugh because the longest any reconnaissance guy had ever lasted with them was eight days. Again, wouldn't have been unusual because uh, as uh, one of the pilots tells Indy, explains to him, well, when you think about it, as an observer, you're flying low, slow, and straight. Those are not good things to do when you're flying over enemy trenches. And you're carrying a camera when, you know, you should be holding a gun, pretty much, is what he tells him. Yeah, it's, I mean, you're, you're basically a sitting duck. You know, they'd send out uh, escorts with them to, uh, to defend them from aerial attack, but there wasn't much that you could do uh, about the anti-aircraft fire. Right. The biggest thing with anti-aircraft fire is they know where you are, and they know where you're going to be in a few seconds. They can do the math. So Indy here learns that uh, his uh, new plane has just arrived. It's a Sopwith two-seater, and it's flown by Lieutenant Harold Green, uh, who is described here by Lufberry as a good pilot. Uh, he's also a fictitious pilot. Okay, I was going to ask about who this man was. Okay. There, there was no Harold Green who, who flew with the uh, Lafayette Escadrille. Now, the, uh, the plane that he did fly, I, I did do a little research into this and found that it wasn't just a... Uh, Sopwith two-seater. It was actually called uh, the Sopwith one and a half Strutter. Was the uh, was the name of the uh, plane or a Sop one A two model? So it was a British plane that was widely used by the French for uh, observation missions. I couldn't confirm that it was actually used by the Lafayette Escadrille. However, it was so widely used for this mission in the French air service that I don't doubt that it's historically accurate. In fact. Eighty percent of all of the uh, five thousand of these aircraft built during the war were built in France under French under license from Sopwith, not in Britain. It was and it was in use for reconnaissance not only by the French uh, Air Service, but at this time, the spring of nineteen seventeen, and it went on to be used widely by uh, throughout the world. And it was used by the uh, Russian military. And even got as far afield as the Afghan Air Force owned a couple of these and, and operated them. So it, it was a was a well used uh, observer aircraft. It was a two seater. The observer did have a uh, had a swiveling uh, machine gun with which to uh, defend the plane as well as uh, take pictures. Now the uh, the aerial sequences in the uh, in this episode used a one sixth model. Uh, produced by Proctor Enterprises specifically for this episode. And and it's funny, when I was uh, doing research to try and compare the aircraft in the episode with historic pictures of a Sopwith Strutter, mm-hmm. I-, I actually found online a photograph of the model, the actual model used by uh, Lucasfilms hmm. for this. And I uh, looked a little bit into the uh, company that also convinces me that this is authentic. 
this particular aircraft because uh, this is a company that this is their business is making you know aircraft models, including for this particular era. And since this aircraft is going to play such a prominent role in this episode, they went into excruciating detail with it. And I have to believe that if it were an ahistoric uh, aircraft, uh, they would have uh, raised an objection and said, you know what, it's, this might be, might be pretty, but it's not what would have been used. So I couldn't confirm with 100% accuracy, but I'd say with about 99% confident that this is an aircraft that would have been used by the Lafayette Escadrille at this time for this kind of mission. Okay, so something, yeah, very plausible that we would be seeing this here. And yeah, those those models that were used, you know, like we said, this is what, 1995, October 1995, mm-hmm. that this aired? Uh, mm-hmm. Beautifully done. I mean, these aerial shots of, of these dogfights are just amazing. They're absolutely gorgeous. In fact, no, I didn't see Flyboys, which I, I have to assume that they had to have done a, a, a remarkable job with their aerial sequences, too, given you know, the sort of budget that they would have had to work with. That aside, this is the best, has some of the best aerial sequences that I've seen since I watched, you know, Wings, the uh, the winner of the first Academy Award for uh, Best Picture. And that they were actually using, you know, surplus aircraft from the actual war, where you get to see not just dogfights involving a few planes, but you see dozens and dozens of planes, including bombers and whole wings of aircraft going overhead. Yeah, That's the most remarkable, but this is all very respectable. Yeah, and practically, you know, practically done. These are all practical effects, uh, considering this is only, what, four years before uh, Phantom Menace? <laughs> Lucas yeah. didn't really get into the CGI. Uh, we can see a couple of digital effects uh, within this episode, but these flying sequences are so beautifully done. And, uh, you know, we know that George Lucas has a fondness uh, for this era and like wings and other films of the, of the time. Uh, we could see those really influence the way he shot a lot of those dogfighting sequences in star Wars. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And so far as the digital effects in this, one of them was, uh, if you look at in the dogfights, when, when planes do catch fire you see the flames, uh, going back from, they weren't quite right. Yeah. But in a way that, that was actually reminiscent of Wings, where in Wings, when they when a plane was hit and started billowing smoke, the the way they got that effect was they actually took the uh, the prints and they'd use an eraser to smudge back from the engine and made it look like there was smoke billowing from the engine. Wow. These effects were kind of reminiscent of that, and part of me wondered if it wasn't a little bit of a nod towards the early special effects on uh, on uh, air combat. It may have been or may not have been. I never found anything on it, but it at least looked reminiscent of that. Yeah. So, again, make of that what you will. Yeah, interesting. So, just back to the episode here, Indy has just been told that Green is going to be flying him around, uh, but he's a good pilot. And this really all kind of came as a shock to Indy because he went into this assignment thinking, well, he's just going to be the guy there analyzing the photos when they come in. He didn't think he was going to be the guy that's actually being flown around while taking them. Yeah, that would be a little bit different. Yes, <laughs> especially considering how much he does not like flying. Yes. 
So later in a recreation room, Indy is introduced to uh, a couple of pilots that are playing pool. Uh, we see his pilot is there, Lieutenant Green, and two men named Hobie and Len. And uh, Indy is very surprised to see Hobie, who he remembers uh, as uh, Professor Jones's son, the little punk that ran errands for him back in college. Yes, and, and this Hobie, of course, well, of course, <laughs> is, uh, we found out, is Hobie Baker. Hmm. Who is a who is a his actual historic uh, person? Hobie Baker is uh, was an American pilot in the uh, First World War. He never actually flew with a Lafayette Escadrille. He never flew under a French flag. He only ever flew as part of the American Air Service. Again, though, so this is something of a flaw. It's understandable that, given the situation, that they'd want to kind of pull his character forward for for Indy to encounter, and it's easy enough to to say that he flew with the uh, Lafayette uh, Escadrille, mm-hmm. especially since uh, Hobie Baker was already a pilot before the United States uh, entered the war. And in fact, he was one of the first American pilots over uh, to the European theater. And remember, this this episode takes place in mostly in the first two weeks of March. The United States entered the war in April. Uh, Hobie Baker would have arrived uh, in Europe shortly thereafter. So he was actually uh, posted to England uh, as a uh, instructor pilot, where he was very frustrated because he wanted to get into into combat, which he eventually did, uh, scoring uh, three kills of his own before he met his own death while taking off in a new aircraft. Hobie Baker's, of course, famous uh, in the United States as uh, being the person for whom the Hobie Baker Award is named. Yeah. That's, the, that's NCAA hockey's equivalent of the uh, Heisman uh, Trophy. Yep. It's awarded to the outstanding hockey player. He's also the only person honored in both the uh, football and hockey halls of fame, because uh, back in the era before professional sports, when all sports was amateur, he won... I believe it was three national titles as a football player and two as a hockey player. Yeah, incredibly accomplished athlete. In fact, when they built the Hockey Hall of Fame, he was one of the first nine inductees. And he was the the first American ever enshrined in the Hockey Hall of Fame as well. Yes. And there's some question around his death, whether it was the result of mechanical failure. There's some speculation that it may even have been a suicide because the great love of his life had just rejected him in a letter. Oh, boy. It was shortly thereafter that he uh, took off, and he was he was known as, as a very good pilot, pretty much very good at everything he did, apparently. Yeah, really? And it was his plane took off and then just nosedived. So whether it was a mechanical error or whether it was a suicide is a subject of some speculation. The question's out there. But yeah, like you said, just uh, a guy that, excelled at everything he wanted to do a great uh, hockey player for princeton i believe right that was a well that makes sense right because he would know the joneses from princeton yes now does indy meet up with hobie earlier in the series the same actor and everything i believe he does though i'm not positive yeah is one adventure that he has that is set in princeton new jersey where he's uh where he's uh fighting uh german spies who are engaged in industrial espionage uh, or sabotage, rather, which is actually a, a, an interesting episode because there he also meets the author of the Tom Swift Senior stories, hmm. 
which if uh, when I was a kid, I, I used to read the uh, Tom Swift Jr. adventures, mm-hmm. which are the stories, uh, for anyone who's not familiar, which are the stories of a whiz kid inventor who's the son of Tom Swift Sr., who's founded Swift uh, Enterprises or Industries, whatever it is. And there's a whole very successful series of books written, I believe, in the 40s and 50s, about the same time as the Hardy Boys stories. Well, there was a previous series, the Tom Swift Senior, which uh, incidentally, you probably want to cut all this out because this is way too much of a digression. <laughs> but, but the Tom Swift Senior books, whereas the Tom Swift Junior is doing things like you know go, going to the bottom of the ocean, you know, in submarines and going into space and all that. Tom Swift Senior, which was written in the nineteen teens, has have much more limited things like the book that Indy is reading. And the episode is uh, is Tom Swift and the electric motorbike, <laughs> which, which which you can find as an e text online. Because after I saw the episode, yeah, I looked for it, found it, and read about half of it. And it's not bad. And it's in <laughs> fact one of the one of the details on it that I that I thought was interesting was that you really sold it as you know electric motors have much better acceleration than internal combustion engines. This is really a much faster sort of bike. And, of course, that's true, as you find out with things like, you know, with the introduction of the Tesla and all, yeah. that are well-known for, for having much better acceleration than cars with internal combustion engines. So it's kind of interesting that you can actually you see the book in the episode, and you can go online and actually read it and see what Indy was reading. Wow. But as I say, that's probably a much longer digression. Yes. <laughs> Maybe if we do that episode, I can bring some of that stuff up. But I, I just thought that was really interesting. It is, yeah. I mean, just a testament to the uh, painstaking detail that they put into every one of these episodes. Yeah, absolutely. So back to the episode, uh, the men are told that Indy, or... Captain Defense is the new replacement photographer. And, you know, this is where they kind of laugh and they're like, well, you know, this is, you say it's going to be two weeks, but the longest anyone's lasted is eight days. So that night, Indy kind of lies awake. He's looking at framed photos that are up on the wall. They're kind of, there's some that are like airplane crashes. Uh, so <laughs> not really the best thing to be looking at before bed. I, I had to wonder when I'm when I'm watching this. So yeah, that struck me as well as what kind of what kind of squadron posts photographs of its own downed aircraft. <laughs> I'm thinking this is a unit in serious need of a morale officer. Yeah, well, he was told they were crazy. <laughs> Absolutely. Just as an aside, with the uh, with the squadron, there were a total of nine American pilots who did give their lives uh, while flying for the uh, escadrille. One of its pilots, Edmund Gennett, is actually recorded as the first American killed in combat following the United States' declaration of war on the Central Powers. We declared war on uh, Germany and uh, Austria-Hungary, and a few days later he was uh, killed in combat, quite a bit before any actual American units arrived in theater. That's just another little distinction of the, uh, of the Lafayette Escadrille. So from here, we cut to the next morning as a plane soars through the clouds next to a rainbow. And uh, as a photographer prepares to take a group photo of Indy and some of the pilots next to a plane, they're all of a sudden buzzed by this low-flying plane that then ascends and it performs a variety of stunts before landing. 
Uh, we also cut to uh, the insignia on the side of this plane. It's a black heart with a, a skull and crossbones, a coffin, and two candlesticks. Now, as this plane comes to a halt, the other pilots, they applaud, they warmly greet him. They knew exactly who this guy was. Uh, Hobie tells Indy that that's their best pilot, Charles Nungesser, the French flying ace. Yes, indeed. He was their uh, their best pilot, Charles Nungesser, uh, scored a total of 43 confirmed kills. He was one of the uh, French pilots attached uh, to the Escadrille. Now, I did... Uh, did check up on this, and while visiting the Escadrille on convalescent leave, because when he climbs out, you see that he's he's not in the best condition. Oh, he's yeah, covered he in bandages. In a sling, he's, he's got his leg in a cast um, because he was uh, he was uh, he saw a lot of combat and was injured quite a bit. Um, in fact, by the end of the war, Lungesser's uh, injuries were summarized in his medical record as, as follows: "Quote." Skull fracture, brain concussion, internal injuries, multiple, five fractures of the upper jaw, two fractures of lower jaw, piece of anti-aircraft shrapnel embedded in right arm, dislocation of knees, left and right, re-dislocation of left knee, hmm. bullet wound in mouth, bullet wound in ear, atrophy of tendons in left leg, atrophy of muscles in calf, dislocated clavicle, dislocated wrist, dislocated right, right ankle, wow. loss of teeth, contusions too numerous to mention, end quote. Now, I did confirm that around this time, while visiting the Escadrille on convalescent leave, Nungesser did borrow a plane and shot down a German pilot. It's ostensibly from this victory that he's returning, though that would make the presence of his personal insignia of the skull and crossbones and coffin with two candles on the plane a historical inaccuracy. But that personal insignia is very famous. Okay. I've seen, I've seen that before. Uh, so he, he was a remarkable pilot. He was not very disciplined. He, in fact, did get in trouble on, on at least one occasion for flying when he wasn't authorized to. Uh, he just loved to fly and to fight. Unbelievable. Yeah, and I was going to ask about that. Did he have that reputation for being chronically injured? Because that's all we see him as throughout this episode. You know, kind of comically so, the way they stage it. And uh, very clearly, we can see when he smiles, he has those gold teeth. So, yeah, yeah just uh, another detail that they got correct. Absolutely accurate. And in fact, uh, in spite of all of his injuries, he did survive the war. He became a rival to Charles Lindbergh. But he did eventually perish attempting the first transatlantic flight just two weeks before uh, Charles Lindbergh's successful attempt. Oh, wow. The mystery of his disappearance has never been solved. It's thought that he was lost at sea, though there were apparently some rumors that he may have crashed in Newfoundland uh, or in Maine. But, uh, you know, he attempted the crossing uh, just before Lindbergh and uh, did not make it. Now, one thing that I wanted to point out is that as uh, Nungesser's uh, plane is landing at the aerodrome, you can hear the uh, engine sputtering. And, and you'll often, in any depiction of, uh, of World War I aircraft, you'll often hear on, on takeoff or landing the sound of, uh, well, mostly a landing, but you'll hear the sound of, of the engine sputtering like that. Mm -hmm. And it's easy to assume that this means that, you know, that, that the engine's misfiring or that it's just, you know, these are really rickety aircraft and, you know, it's just barely able to, to keep to the skies. But that's not true at all. It is accurate, the, uh, the sputtering, 
but that's not because of any misfiring or anything. These aircraft were such early machines, uh, such, well, sort of primitive machines. They did not have throttles. So you couldn't gradually increase the power or, or, or decrease the power as you would like in your car when you step on the gas mm-hmm. to, to accelerate and decelerate. You couldn't do that with these aircraft. The uh, fuel flow was either all out or nothing. Wow. <laughs> so the way, the, way they, the way they regulated their speed was it, it was kind of like a binary system they, by switching the engine on and off. So you're at least turning the flow of fuel to the, to the engine on and off. So the sputtering is really them regulating the speed so that they're, but for instance, as he's landing, he still needs power to be able to maneuver and control the aircraft, but he doesn't want to be coming in at full speed. So he's cutting the engine repeatedly so that he can control uh, his, his rate of approach. Now, when we see Nungusser here, he, uh, he shows up limping, covered in bandages. He apologizes for interrupting their little photographic session. Uh, but he mentions that he had just downed what he thinks was Richthofen's brother. Everyone is very impressed, and uh, Nungusser gets in the photo right next to Indy. There's good reason for them to be impressed. Because Richthofen, anyone who, who doesn't know who, who that is, right. uh, is uh, would be Manfred von Richthofen, uh, better known as the legendary Red Baron. Richthofen flew in the uh, Flying Circus uh, Squadron, so-called because of uh, the brightly colored aircraft that, uh, that they came to fly right around this time. His brother, uh, Lothar, also flew with the uh, Flying Circus, was also an ace with 40 kills. One other uh, famous or rather infamous member of the uh, of the squadron, or Yasta uh, in German, uh, would have been a young Hermann Goering, who I believe uh, makes an appearance uh, in this episode. So we next cut to a military briefing where they're told by Lufberry to investigate a reported arms buildup at the railroad yard in Hamm. Uh, Green is instructed to take his new sop with and photograph the site with, of course, Captain Defense. And uh, Carl and Hobie will fly escort for them. So the briefing ends after they're told that takeoff's in 15 minutes. As everyone files out of the room, it's said to Indian passing, I hope you make it, kid. Well, that's encouraging. I guess. Technically, it's it's encouraging. (laughs) It's not really said in an encouraging way, but... So we next get a large group of men just rolling out the planes by hand, you know, a whole group of them. And uh, we cut to Indy. He's now in his flight gear and he's got his giant camera. Of course, you know, this is 1917. And yeah, he's no iPhone. That's right. And he's getting in with a very nervous expression on his face, understandably. And we see yeah. the three planes take to the skies. And let me tell you, but I'm obviously, you know, very interested in this uh, era of history and, and I'm interested in the aircraft of this era because there's something about them that to me recalls sailing ships. There's something just very organic about the, the relationship between the pilot and, and his aircraft. It's not as much of a science as it is an art. So uh, after a bit of flying, we see them over a landscape. We see that there's some explosions uh, below as well. Uh, Green kind of slaps the side of the plane. Indy gets to work taking photos with his large camera. And we see that the camera is basically leather strapped to a mount on the side of the plane. Just, you know, just kind of bolted right to it. A lot of things were, you know, this was the dawn of aerial combat and uh, combat missions. And things were improvised 
to, to a very large part. I mean, they were just coming up with solutions uh, as they went. For instance, on some of the aircraft, you can see uh, the uh, machine gun, uh, the Lewis gun, uh, is not positioned directly in front of the pilot. I believe on, on this aircraft that it's not positioned directly in front of the pilot for the pilot to be able to sight down the, the barrel mm -hmm. and aim. It's instead on the upper wing so that the pilot has to reach up and, and pull the trigger. The reason for that being that there was a matter of a propeller in the way. Now, early in the war, there was a problem of, well, what do you do? You well, first of all, the planes were unarmed until pilots started bringing up pistols, grenades, rifles to try and fight each other. Um, in fact, initially, the pilots would wave to each other. Wow. Didn't even try to, to hurt each other. But then, you know, the importance of reconnaissance um, was realized and the importance of denying the enemy reconnaissance so they'd start to shoot at each other. Well, then it became natural to bring machine guns up into the planes, but with the machine gun sighted in front of the pilot, you had a problem because you're trying to shoot where your propeller is. Now, the, the problem was addressed in a couple of ways. One resolution was that they, they put, really, a triangular piece of armor on the propeller itself so that any bullets that hit would just ricochet off so they wouldn't shoot their own propellers off. Hmm. The problem with that solution was that, while well, it worked for a while, but eventually the armor would wear down, and yes, you'd shoot your own propeller off. The, the greater problem was that, well, you're firing a machine gun at a propeller a couple of feet in front of you, and the ricochet can go any direction, including directly back at the pilot. Yeah. So that wasn't necessarily the best solution. With some planes, they would indeed put the Lewis gun on top of the upper wing to fire over the uh, propeller, but that, of course, would affect your ability to, to aim with any kind of accuracy. The eventual solution was uh, was an interrupter gear that coordinated with the, with the strokes of the uh, pistons in the engine so that the bullets were timed to fire between the revolutions of the, uh, of the propellers. And that, that was the solution that eventually was adopted. But, again, that was something that it was a solution that was worked out as they were in combat, you know, they they were sending planes up before they had the solution and were just trying all the workarounds that they could before they came up with the solution. Yeah, so Green now tells Indy to start snapping as more explosions take place below, which we see is actually anti-aircraft fire. Uh, next, the three planes are encountered by eight German planes heading their way. So, along with dodging ground fire, they're involved with this dogfight with the Germans. At one point, Green and Indy's plane gets its wheels shot out, or at least that's what he thinks, and Indy has to climb out on the wing to check things out. This is a, quite a crazy scene. I, I think this is, they, they just couldn't resist the the, the idea of, of some wing walking going on. Lucas certainly does have a thing for using every part of the vehicle, whether it's uh, Indiana Jones fighting the uh, Nazis in a truck, uh, on the hood of the truck, under the truck. Yeah, right. Or it's a World War One era tank in the, in the third movie, where they fight in the tank, on the tank, on the side of the tank, in the front of the tank, behind it, <laughs> under it, and then drive it off a cliff. He really gets his use out of the vehicles. Yeah, no kidding. So, yeah, we get this whole sequence here, very suspenseful. Uh, I mean, 
it's tough with this series because you know Indy's going to survive, uh, especially <laughs> since even in these episodes, you see Indy as a 93-year-old man, so you know Indy's going to make it. But still, these sequences are very suspenseful. Uh, you know, he's forced to roll the plane, and Indy's just hanging on for dear life. And at one point, you know, Green kind of looks over the side of the plane, and he's like, well, that's it, I lost him. But really, Indy's hanging on from the very bottom, and uh, Indy is somehow able to swing his legs up and climb back in, much to Green's surprise. <laughs> now, there were a couple of flaws in this. The reason why he has to check, get out on the wing and, and look at the wheels is because, well, no wheels can't land. Yeah. But, well, that's as may be, but finding out that you don't have any wheels doesn't solve the problem. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's, so whether you know or not, you're going you're gonna to give it a try. Um <laughs> But again, I can understand because the, the wing-walking sequence is certainly well worth it. The, the real flaw in it is that this mission is supposed to be being flown over a rail yard 49 kilometers behind German lines. Yet, if you look at what Indy is taking pictures of, he's taking pictures of German trench lines. Yeah, yeah. Now, now the trenches were, there, there was some depth to these trenches um, because it's, the trench lines weren't completely static. When soldiers went over the top, they weren't just mowed down. They very often did make it to the opposing trenches and take the opposing trenches. Problem was, was that there were trenches behind the trenches and behind the trenches, and they didn't have the strength to keep going. But 47 kilometers deep is really... That would be pretty remarkably deep trench lines. Oh, yes. So if the mission really were, as stated... They would have encountered anti-aircraft as they crossed the trench line, and that's about it. Then it would have just been being aware of uh, of enemy uh, fighters. So after all that, Indy screams to him that the wheels are okay. So a little unnecessary, but, you know, we got a little action here. That's right. So just when things seemed like they were somewhat getting back to normal, a German plane sneaks up behind them and shoots out their engine, forcing them to make an emergency landing. And heading down, they end up snagging a tree. They kind of bury the nose in the dirt before tipping back down. And once on the ground, they're now on an open field. So they're, they're running to the woods, trying to flee both the smoking plane and enemy fire. Mm-hmm. So once they make it over to some tree cover, we see German soldiers approach, and Green is struck in the arm. So they decide, well, let's just run back to the machine guns on the plane. But the soldiers advance, hitting Green again. And from there, he just tells Indy, just burn the plane. But before Indy can now make it over, the soldiers reach both him and Green, and with bayonets held up to their faces, they both surrender. Probably a wise choice. Yeah. (laughs) So as they're being apprehended, we see the plane that shot them down lands nearby, and the pilot stomps over, you know, demanding the trophy he shot down. And seeing the medal around the pilot's neck, the soldiers order that the looting to be stopped, uh, saying that the prize belongs to Rittmeister von Richthofen who Green knows right away as Baron Manfred von Richthofen, and uh, listeners may know, as we talked about, we know him better as the Red Baron. The uh, metal hanging around uh, Richthofen's neck was uh, formerly known as the uh, Pour la Marie uh, medal, that's more uh, more commonly known as the Blue Max, the highest award uh, uh, granted to, uh, to German pilots uh, in the First World War. Uh, Richthofen had just been awarded that in January of 1917, uh, basically a month and a half or so, about six weeks or so, before 
this episode takes place. And it was after he uh, received that award that he assumed uh, command of uh, the Flying Circus. I see. So, yeah, so it would have been well-renowned by this point. Absolutely. He was already a, a very famous pilot. Now, everyone knows him now as the Red Baron, but we should mention that the, this plane that he's flying is not red at all. That's right. It's a, it's a sort of a dun-colored uh, aircraft. It's not red, and it's not the, uh, the famous uh, Fokker DR-1 uh, triplane that everybody knows from, uh, from Snoopy and, uh, and all that. Yep. that that's a, just an iconic aircraft, you know, painted scarlet red. But this is one of the best, most accurate details in the entire uh, episode. And it's really kind of the reason why I chose this of all the episodes to examine. Now, that red Fokker DR-1 triplane was a plane that he only adopted later in his career, scoring a majority of his kills instead in a red Albatross uh, D-2. Now, in, in a fine bit of attention to detail, in this episode, he shoots down Indy and Green Sopwith while flying a dun-colored albatross. Mm -hmm. What makes this remarkable is that in January of 1917, Rick was awarded the Blue Max, as I said, and assumed command of, uh, of the Yasta. It was at that point, it was in January 1917, that he adopted his practice of painting his plane red. Now, at that time, he was flying an albatross D3. So that was the first plane that was painted red. Mm -hmm. It was a biplane, not a triplane. But on January 24th, 1917, his plane suffered a cracked strut. And for the next five weeks or so, it was undergoing repairs. And so he reverted to a borrowed plane, Albatross D-2, which he flew until April the 2nd. Now, according to the Indiana Jones timelines, and a calendar that's actually shown later on in the episode. This episode begins on February 2nd, okay, when, he, when he and Remy uh, enter uh, spy school with yep. uh, Belgian intelligence. On or about February 28th, could be the 27th, but I believe it's the 28th, he joins Lafayette Escadrille and flies with them through mid-March, March the 13th being his last mission. Okay, so... The show's producers not only avoided the temptation to show the Red Baron flying his iconic red triplane, they instead used an aircraft to which Rick Coffin reverted for only a window of five weeks during which this episode takes place. <laughs> That's so amazing. They got that detail perfectly. Uh, I was when, when I did research on this, when I first saw the episode... I was I was really impressed by it, and and I should point out that indeed it is a an albatross D two that that he's shown fly that I did compare the profiles and that is a D two okay that, that he's flying so uh, so they got the detail perfect for this wow that is remarkable yeah I, I was just I, I mean British television and movies tend to be renowned for historical accuracy on that level, but not so much American. But this was just, I, I've never seen that uh, attention to, to historical detail like that in any American production of anything. Wow. So, yeah, that one blew me away. So back to the episode now. We see uh, Richtofen approach Indy, and they introduce themselves to each other. 
Uh, Green is ordered by Richtofen to a field hospital for immediate medical attention, so he's kind of carried away. Uh, Richtofen officially welcomes Indy to Germany and invites him as his luncheon guest at his aerodrome. Uh, after the invite, he walks over to the downed plane and cuts out the Native American head insignia painted on its side. Uh, you know, that is the, the logo of the Escadrille. And uh, he wants to give it to his mother as a souvenir of the American Wild West. <laughs> Definitely portrayed here as an arrogant man. Yes, in fact, uh, after each uh, victory, uh, Richtofen uh, commemorated each victory by having a uh, silver cup made with the uh, with the details of his uh, victory. So he had a, he had quite a large collection of silver cups until until later in his career when uh, when the scarcity of silver made uh, made this practice really prohibitive. And at which point he had the choice of discontinuing the practice or uh, or having the cups made from an inferior metal, at which point, rather than going to an inferior metal, he just ended the collection. Ostensibly, he would have had one for, for downing Indiana Jones. Yeah, right, exactly. So we next cut to Indy being driven away as a prisoner of war. Uh, meanwhile, the other Lafayette Escadrille pilots return, wondering what happened to Green and Indy. Uh, Hobie volunteers to fly back and find them, and Lufberry loans him his plane. So... We cut back to Indy. He's now sitting in this luxurious dining room, uh, kind of just uh, casually discussing the war with a table full of German pilots. And I was looking at this scene, and I was just laughing. You know, Indy sitting down at a table for a meal. If he only knew uh, what uh, kind of meals he would be having later on in his life, you know, in the movie trilogy. Yeah. <laughs> there are no monkey skulls at this table. That's all I could think of is like, yeah, see, Indy, you're taking all these invites early in your life. You know, if you only knew what you'd be agreeing to later on. But, uh, you know, Indy asks them for their reasons for fighting. Uh, some of them claim to, you know, have the instinct for it. Others love the fame of being compared to the medieval knights, you know, in, in newspapers. So Indy kind of scoffs at the idea of them thinking of themselves as knights on steeds with scarves as feathered plumes. And he says, I'm surprised you don't paint your planes bright red. And uh, Richtofen replies, quite. This this does set up a, a, a bit of a gaff uh, uh, later on because, as I mentioned, Richtofen had already started painting his planes red uh, in January of 1917. Yeah, but I understand for the purposes of the story, it's okay. <laughs> I, I get it. They clearly knew, but all right. That that's poetic license. Sure, it's passable. You know, we have this this incredible figure of Indiana Jones, and he has to be shoehorned into all of these historical details and events. So you know, that's understandable. They have to give him credit for some of this stuff. Right, right, exactly. <laughs> so next, Richtofen turns the discussion towards Nungesser. Uh, if you remember earlier in the episode, Nungesser thought he took out Manfred von Richtofen's brother Lothar, uh, but he managed to make it back. And uh, the older brother feels obliged to avenge the attempt on his little brother's life. And incidentally, that's, that's one, one interesting point, is that um, in order to be credited as a kill, it had to, the plane had to have been confirmed to have been down. So, for instance, uh, Nungasar would not have been credited with a kill on that for the very good reason that they couldn't know that, the, that as happened in this episode, couldn't know whether the plane actually went down or made it back to its base. Yeah. So in general, you were really only credited with kills scored over your own lines. 
if you scored a kill behind enemy lines, they generally were not confirmed. Mm. So when I mention how many kills or victories a, uh, a pilot has, those are confirmed kills only. Okay. But now, but now in the conversation at the uh, dinner table there, there's a gaffe, though. This, uh, though this isn't by the producers of the show. This is a gaffe committed by Indy when he's asked by um, Manfred von Richthofen about Nungasser if, uh, if Nungasser is back with the Escadrille and uh, Indy confirms it. That, is, that would be such a huge breach of security for him to confirm something like that. That's intelligence that they would have very much wanted to have known, that one of France's best pilots, their number three ace, in fact, was back in action and in that sector. Yeah, yeah. That would affect choices of missions, how they approached missions. That was a huge gaffe, which, which from an intelligence officer would be stunning, which actually would go back to uh, to confirm Indy's earlier assessment of Belgian intelligence services being viewed as something of a joke, because if they weren't trained not to reveal details like that, uh, that, that, that would be kind of a joke. Oh, well, it, well, serves, I mean, it serves the plot well, later on. It was the most rigorous four weeks of training of his life. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, one other funny moment I just got to bring up is uh, when... When Richtofen asked for more pepper, did you catch that? No, I didn't. Where he's like, Sergeant Pepper. And all I could think is, Lonely Hearts Club Band. <laughs> no, I missed that one. That just made me laugh. Sergeant Pepper. <laughs> so anyway, at the table now, uh, Richtofen writes out a written challenge to Nungasur, or Old Skull and Crossbones as he calls him. He uh, challenges him to a duel the following day at dawn. And Lothar volunteers to drop the message to the Lafayette Escadrille Aerodrome. And uh, Indy just kind of sits there overwhelmed as the round table of pilots toast a victory in front of a large painting of a medieval knight. So we briefly cut away to Hobie Baker uh, spotting Lieutenant Green's down Sopwith in the open field. So he knows something happened. Uh, from yeah. here, that, that's just a very brief cutaway. But from here we cut back to Indy. And the Germans, as Richthofen is informed that Anthony Falker has arrived in the field. Uh, Richthofen then says his goodbyes to Indy, who he says will now be interned for the rest of the war. Uh, they shake hands and Indy is taken away. And as Richthofen walks away, he orders that his albatross be painted red. Even though it, you know, means he'll be more visible. It's a very bold choice. Yes. <laughs> and of course, we know where he got the idea. Uh, clearly, it was Indiana Jones. <laughs> So cutting back to Indy, he's now on the back of a truck with German soldiers. He's heading for his internment. And after some time of just kind of sitting and staring, the truck gets tailgated by this very impatient German officer. He's honking and waving to them to get out of the way. So seizing this opportunity, of course, we have to get like a real Indiana Jones-like scene here. Because, because incidentally, the Germans clearly don't realize that he has them exactly where he wants them. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> What? Guarded by Germans in a truck? Oh, I know what to do about this. <laughs> yes, we'll, we'll see this many times in his life. Uh, Indy makes the most of the distraction here. He grabs a soldier's rifle, he fights off his captors, jumps into the tailgating vehicle, fighting them off and holding a gun to the driver's head and forcing him to drive. And as all of this is taking place, we see Hobie still flying, uh, discovering Indy on the road below. So he circles back to help he fires on the truck pursuing Indy and forces it off the road. 
And we get a very interesting moment in this episode, Steve. I don't know if you caught it. The truck hits some hay, and the driver is thrown from the driver's seat. Mm-hmm. Now, we get a very interesting sound here. Did you happen to catch it? Uh, yes, I, I, I didn't, but I did catch it in a write-up of <laughs> Yes, this is the, uh, the very famous Wilhelm scream. Uh, for those of you not familiar, this is a very famous stock scream that's been used in many TV shows and films. Uh, just a brief history of it. It was recorded in 1951, kind of as a stock sound for the movie Distant Drums. But most notably, it's been used widely in pop culture thanks to Ben Burt, who put the scream in all the Star Wars and Indiana Jones movies. And as we mentioned, Ben Burt, of course, is also the director of this episode, so it makes perfect sense. <laughs> I think even Boba Fett at one point gives out the Wilhelm scream. Yeah, I, I mean, I have heard of it before, and of course have heard it, as being just very famous, that, that there are people who actually, as a hobby, you know, track it, yes. <laughs> where it shows up. There's some great uh, supercuts on YouTube of the uh, Wilhelm Scream in pop culture, so I definitely recommend you checking those out. I believe I read that Wilhelm Scream shows up twice in this episode. It does, and I, I'm not sure. I didn't catch the second time. I'm wondering if it's in part two, if it's in the next episode. Oh, that could be. Because, again, these, these movies are really two episodes stitched together. Yes. In fact, uh, just another Star Wars connection. Anthony Daniels, C-3PO, is also somewhere in this Attack of the Hawkmen TV movie. Yes. Yes, and somewhere in the uh, second half of it. Yeah, not, not in what we covered. Part we didn't watch. Yes. So cutting back to Indy, he finally knocks out the driver of the vehicle and uh, is thrown off the road. A Hobie lands nearby, and Indy tries to defend German fire now advancing on him with just a pistol kind of crouching behind the car. Indy is somehow able to run across the field without getting shot, getting into the plane with Hobie, and flying away. So, uh, more great action scenes here. Uh, we cut back to the Escadrille Aerodrome as Indy and Hobie land, but soon after, a German plane is spotted flying over them. And of course, we the viewers know that this is Lothar, who earlier had volunteered to drop his brother's challenge uh, to Nungasur. So, yeah. as he flies over, he drops the message, it's kind of just like, you know, the letter's rolled up in this leather cylinder case and just plop, drops it on top of the roof and it falls down. Uh, as Lufberry begins to open it, Indy explains he already knows what it is because, oh yeah, because he had lunch with Richthofen earlier that day. <laughs> I love some, I forget who it is. Someone's like, you what? <laughs> it's pretty funny. I like that bit. Oh yeah, I was there when he wrote it. <laughs> yeah, I had lunch with him. So Lufberry reads the details. Uh, we get a little more uh, detail here. It's a challenge uh, to a duel over dawn at the castle at Saint-Quentin. At this point, Nungesser had already left for Paris, so they decide to go get him. So we cut to Indy and the guys kind of singing their Lafayette fight song. Do you know what this song is, Steve? I don't. I meant to look it up, but I'm uh, sure that it's again historically accurate yeah it's a it's a real song i'm not sure it's just kind of like a rah rah celebration type song uh they sing it as they drive down the road toward the sunset so from here we cut to that night on the streets of paris as they arrive louvberry knows exactly where to find nungasur because he spotted his car it's actually a german staff car that he kept as a prized possession and believe me i looked this up as well yeah Early in the war, uh, Nungesser was not a pilot. He started in the war, started out as a uh, as a cavalry officer. And at the uh, Battle of the Marne, he did indeed 
capture a German staff car after killing its occupants and kept it. No way. And yes, that is historically accurate. And it was for it was for that that he was able to uh, he was able to parlay that into a transfer into uh, the air service. So that is an accurate detail. <laughs> That's amazing. I, I did not expect that to be a real detail. Of course, with so much you know color like that, it, it, on one hand, you're like, well, wow, they really stuck to detail. But then again, when you research the character or, or, or the historic personage, when there's that much color available, it's like, boy... How would they ever have resisted using that? Right, exactly. <laughs> you know, it's, it's like these things. We've got to find some way to shoehorn this into the episode. But I just thought that was just to show kind of how crazy of a guy this was, you know, but no. Yeah, he really was that crazy. So inside we see Nungusser's bandaged hand holding the letter as he sits at a formal dining table. It looked like this is some sort of ball or a gathering of some sort. Mm-hmm. Uh, he happily accepts the challenge and, of course, requests that Indy will join him to take photos of his victory and toasts to the defeat of Richthofen. And, of course, Nungasar is, is surrounded by women. Yes. Um, uh, as to, to kind of paraphrase a, a comment that I ran across describing him, he spent much of the war in, well, let's say, in, in one type of bed or another. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> So, and another little detail that they get right with with him is that uh, that yes, indeed, he is reported to have on occasion gone into combat wearing a tuxedo from from his festivities the previous evening. Oh my goodness! Wow. He just didn't bother to change. That's crazy. <laughs> He's quite a colorful character. Yeah, it really was. I, I really learned to like him from researching him. So next we cut to dawn the next day at the castle at St. Quentin. Uh, Nungasur is in flight with Indy. And I, I wasn't quite able to get this. So basically Nungasur is flying by himself and Indy was with Hobie in a separate plane? Exactly. Okay. It's not clear the way they do it. The way they do it, it makes it at first look like he's flying with Nungasur in a uh, uh, strutter. Yeah. Which would have been absurd because... That would have been suicide. Right, right. And second of all, how how he'd be expected to get good pictures of the combat that he's in would have been rather difficult. Besides which, it would have been uh, to, to go into uh, into a fight like that in a plane with a second machine gun could also have been considered dishonorable, even though the plane itself was at a, a marked disadvantage against an albatross. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So yeah, maybe this was just because of the editing, but uh, yeah, it was a little unclear at first, but basically, yeah, Indy's taking pictures, but still in harm's way here. Oh, absolutely. So of course, after a short while, they are confronted by Richthofen, now of course, flying a bright red plane. Yes. And so, Richthofen salutes, Nungusser blows a kiss back, and they begin. They start maneuvering, and Indy's snapping all kinds of photos. Uh, repeatedly, they turn around and fly at each other and fire one, you know, one after another, over and over. Now, one thing that I should point out is that uh, all the excitement aside, the war in the air during the First World War involved far fewer um, dogfights than than are depicted in in, in popular culture. Uh-huh. Most of the flights were just uneventful patrols or missions uh, against, uh, for instance, uh, observation balloons. In fact. 
operation are not from dogfights. They're from balloon bursting operations. Oh, wow. Where they're shooting down balloons, which might sound easy at first because, I mean, it's a sitting duck. Yeah. It's a, it's a helium-filled balloon. How hard is that to shoot down? Turns out pretty difficult because, okay, you can fill it with holes from the machine gun, but those holes are tiny. And even if with incendiary rounds, you know, with phosphorus, that you would think that, well, that's going to make the, uh, you know, you fire a phosphorus round through hydrogen, it's going to make the, the whole thing explode like Hindenburg. Well, not really, because there's so much hydrogen, but no oxygen mm. with which to react. So the balloons were actually pretty difficult to, uh, to shoot down. So they did get credit for kills when they shot down an observation balloon, because, of course, they were exposing themselves to ground fire and to attack from other aircraft, so it was hazardous as well. In fact, there were aces who really made their names in flying against balloons. So there are fewer dogfights than you imagine, even for the aces, and most pilots were lucky to get a kill at all during the entire duration of their service. A normal combat would usually involve just a single pass at, at an enemy plane, firing off one burst of ammunition, and then either one or the other plane's guns jamming, and just ending inconclusively with, uh, with pilots breaking off contact and one or the other running away. Hmm. This, of course, being a duel, well, is, is, isn't quite the same. This is a bit more of a committed combat, and there aren't multiple planes swirling around, so you're actually concentrated on one target, so... A little bit different situation, but I just thought that was kind of, you know, relevant context to put it into. Yeah, definitely. So, finally, you know, after firing at each other, Nungusser is able to shoot out Richthofen's engine, forcing him to land. And Nungusser laughs, but not for long, as an entire German squadron now moves in. Uh, Indy mans his gun as they try to fight them off, but Hobie ends up getting shot in the arm here. Uh, Nungusser moves in to assist but eventually also his plane is shot down and forced to make a very rough landing. Uh, we cut back to the Escadrille Aerodrome where Hobie is placed on a stretcher. He tells the men that Nungusser hit Richthofen, but really that's all he saw. He couldn't confirm anything. So, you know, the fate of this duel is unknown. And I, I, in my notes, I was going to make a duel of the fates phantom menace joke, but I, yeah, no, I'm not going to, I'm not going to go there. So we next cut to Indy getting his photos developed in the darkroom, and here's our first reference to Richthofen as the Red Baron, as they admire Indy's photo of him going down. And I just kind of laughed. I'm like, yeah, of course he's red. Everybody looks red. You're in the dark room. Like, how do you... And plus it's a black and white photo. So, yeah, whatever. I guess you had to be there. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> <laughs> Word spread fast, I guess. Yes. So we cut later outside as a car pulls up to the aerodrome, honking... And uh, the men are amazed to see Nungusser exit the vehicle, of course, more bandaged than ever. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he laughs off the rumors of his demise, saying that oh, it was just another one of his bumpy landings in no man's land. <laughs> and uh, he's very happy to see Indy's photo, especially because of how furious he says it will make Richthofen once he sees it in the press. As indeed he is. Yes. So cutting back to the German aerodrome, Richthofen is told that he is very fortunate that his old reliable albatross only suffered a small leak. But he's happy to make his next flight in a new bright red plane designed by Anthony Fokker, uh, a plane he describes as an unrivaled gun platform with wings. 
Falker is there because we we learned earlier in the episode that you know he was in the field. He tells him that it'll twist and turn like a hornet and climb faster than anything they've had before. And here we see that triplane, that that very famous Red Baron plane. Yes, the Fokker DR1, the the iconic uh, Red Baron aircraft. Now, this this was another inaccuracy in the uh, story. Richthofen didn't adopt the Fokker DR1 until late July 1917, not March, as is implied in the episode. Mm -hmm. And in between the Albatross D3, which, which he flew in the duel, and the Fokker, he flew an Albatross D5. So he did, around this time or not too far after this time, get a new aircraft, but it wasn't the DR-1. However, even though it's in inaccuracy, I can't fault the producers because they really controlled themselves very well up to this point. You really can't have an episode with the Red Baron and not show that plane. So yeah. they pulled it forward by a few months. But it, it was worth it because I enjoyed seeing it, too. Yeah, yeah. Oh. It's, it's understandable. Yeah, they, there are a few creative liberties that they take here and there, and this is completely understandable. They already made their point very well that they knew exactly what he was flying and when he was flying. They already made that point. Yeah. So now, okay, you earned a pass <laughs> the rest of the episode on pretty much everything. Yes. So, cutting back from here to the Escadrille Aerodrome, Nungasur departs for Paris. He wishes Indy well. And uh, he tells Indy that he's so confident in him, you know, that he'll continue fighting, that he promises to return with Champagne and will personally drive him back to Paris when his assignment is up. You know, Indy's, you know, kind of unsure if he'll even make it to the end of his assignment, but uh, Nungusser has seen a lot of bravery from Indy and he believes that he'll be alive by the time the two weeks is up. I think it's just an excuse to, to have some more Champagne. <laughs> Maybe so. <laughs> If, I, if he makes it, I have an excuse. If not, uh, I'll, I'll toast him in mourning. Right, right. So back in Germany, Lothar reads the newspaper and is furious because he sees this, you know, of course, now famous photo that Indy took. He was furious that Indy was brought to the duel to capture his brother's death. You know, how arrogant. So the Red Baron promises to make it a priority to deny them the pleasure of filming his death. And he says it's very simple. Shoot down the cameraman first. Now, that's very interesting. It's both accurate and inaccurate. Obviously, um, it, it wasn't motivated by by anything Indiana Jones did, because Indiana Jones, of course, is a fictional character. Yeah. For anyone unaware of that. <laughs> I hope so by, by now. But it is true that Richthofen did indeed stress the importance of targeting the observer first, in any dogfight with uh, with a scout with a two seater aircraft, mm -hmm. but this wasn't because of any uh, need to uh, preserve his own uh, dignity. It was actually because the observer controlled a dual machine gun with a wide range of fire behind the aircraft and posed a threat that was best eliminated as soon as possible. Otherwise, when he was uh, flying against an aircraft, you know, a single seater, a, a true fighter aircraft. He stressed killing the pilot rather than simply downing the plane. So he, he aimed for the pilot, not the engine. The engine being the easier target, but if you shot the plane down but didn't kill the pilot, the pilot would come back in another aircraft, Yeah. unless he was captured behind lines. But you kill the pilot, and both the pilot and the plane are gone. So he was, uh, so he was famous for going after the pilot, but again... 
If it was an observer aircraft, it was kind of a two-stage thing. First, you get rid of the observer because he's a direct threat. Then, once the observer is dead, then you can approach what's really a pretty lumbering, slow, unmaneuverable aircraft pretty easily from behind and can shoot it down. Um, another detail that they got correct uh, earlier in the episode about Richthofen's flying tactics was that when he shot down Green and Jones, Green mentions, oh, I should have realized who it was the way he dove out of the sun at us. That oh, was yeah. one of the things that, that Richthofen did establish as kind of a trademark is you always attack out of the sun if you could. Yeah, yeah. Because it gives you the element of surprise. So uh, another couple of details that they got right, even if they attributed targeting the observer to, <laughs> to, to Indy. So we next get a montage set to music of the men of the Lafayette Escadrille. They're kind of celebrating in the dining hall. Uh, they're singing this song about... Uh, kind of a gruesome song, the parts of a plane embedded in a pilot's body and then using those parts to rebuild the airplane. Yeah, sort of a bit of, you know, of gallows humor, you know, sort of against the uh, the constant presence of death among them. Yeah. Uh, we see also Indy marking the days left of his assignment on the calendar. He's also uh, developing photos in the dark room. Uh, meanwhile, we also see in this montage the Red Baron claiming more victims from the Escadrille and their names being crossed off uh, of a chalkboard by Lufberry. Now, looking at that uh, chalkboard, uh, none of those names are pilots, are historic pilots from the uh, Escadrille. Oh, really? Uh, there was no Tom Fowler, no, no, because in fact, you can look up and you can see the pilots that flew uh, in the squadron, including which ones were killed. My guess is that they probably use that board to put up names of friends and such, you know, yeah, yeah, sure. family members, you know, to work them into the episode, just figuring that no one would be so uh, pedantic as to check. <laughs> there would be no podcast in the future 20 years from you know, now. Exactly, you know, and, and that no one would be quite as pedantic as me. <laughs> I'm right there with you, Steve. Yeah, there was no Tom Fallon in the Escadrille. <laughs> So finally, as this song ends, the camera zooms in on Indy's calendar, and it's the last day of his assignment. Now, I believe this is March 13th, 1917? Yes, it is. Okay. So right, right around 100 years, uh, if you're listening to around the time we're going to post this episode. Pretty amazing. Yeah. It's almost as if we planned it. By my calculations, he joined the Escadrille on February the uh, 28th, 1917, and I think you were saying you were probably going to be posting this on uh, March the 1st, yes. uh, 2017, which would be the centenary of his first full day with the uh, Escadrille. Wow. It's funny how that just happened to work out like that. We've been talking about doing this episode for a long time, and uh, yeah, I wish we oh, planned we things this well. We timed it this way. Yeah, yeah, sure. This way. Of course. We, we've, we've been waiting since 1992 to do this. <laughs> <laughs> uh. Thank God, I was getting tired of this. <laughs> so, Indy finds out that on his very last day, he must go out on one more important flight. Uh, so they go out, and of course, he and Hobie are confronted by the Red Baron once again. Uh, here, though, they're quickly taken down, and they land back at their aerodrome before the engine explodes. They're just able to, to get away. Later that day, as Indy gives the men their group photo as a parting gift, 
He is told that Woodrow Wilson declared war on Germany and America was now in the war, and that would probably turn over to them the Lafayette Escadrille. Yes, and in fact, that's, that's a little bit of an inaccuracy there, because I believe it was April 2nd or 3rd that uh, the United States declared war. So they pulled that ahead by a couple of weeks for dramatic purposes. Yeah. Uh, it, it, it was fairly close. And yes, indeed, the uh, escadrille was disbanded and, and absorbed into the American Air Service, and they, they flew the uh, rest of the uh, war under an American flag. And of course, sure enough, as promised, Nungusser arrives, uh, well-dressed in his uniform with a bottle of champagne, uh, like he promised to bring Indy back to Paris. And uh, Of course. Yes. And Hobie remarks to Lufberry, well, at least he's out of danger, just as Nungusser almost gets into a car accident, pulling right out of the aerodrome. <laughs> of course. <laughs> pretty funny. That's about where the uh, episode with the uh, Red Baron ends. Now, uh, just one further historic note. After this episode ends, Rick Tocken scored 22 confirmed kills, including four in a single day. So he, it's a good thing that Indy didn't face him a few weeks later because that's when Rick Tocken went on his most, most lethal spree of the entire war. Well, and like you said, you know, this is the plane, the plane at the end of the episode, that's the plane that he's most famous for. But historically, he wasn't flying it in April yet. It wasn't until July that he got it. So he was so he was still in an albatross at that point. But something like 80% of his kills, he did score flying an albatross. So oh, wow. really, the DR-1 was, a, was late in his flying career. Huh. But still, such a remarkable aircraft, both in performance and looks, that he's forever associated with it. And of course, Rick Toffin himself did not survive the war. He was killed in, uh, in combat. He had been wounded, and he had suffered a head injury, which they think affected his ability to fly. That he, when he returned from convalescent leave, that affected his ability to fly. And it's believed that he was actually killed by ground fire from, I think it was in, I believe it was an Australian um, infantryman who is credited with the kill, but it's not certain. They've gone back and forth about who it was that really ended the Red Baron's career, but is certainly the most deadly pilot of the First World War. So basically from here, uh, we see Indy being dropped back off in Paris, right actually in the same office that uh, he was transferred uh, to the French in. He meets up with the, the same French official. Uh, he's given another assignment here. He was trying to persuade Anthony Falker to defect. And so that brings us uh, to the next episode, which I believe is also called Alhorn Germany 1917. Uh, but in this uh, re-editing of the episodes, it serves as part two of Attack of the Hawkmen. But really, these are two standalone episodes. That's why we're not going to get into part two. Uh, but for our purposes, we're done with this episode. Uh, it was one of my favorite episodes. Again, there's just so much good historical detail and that, that you can tell that these were a labor of love. Oh, yeah. It's a show that uh, apparently was much more successful overseas in Europe than in the United States. It was very well received over there. The United States received, I guess, you know, a good critical reception, apparently, but mm -hmm. but never really tremendous ratings, which, which is too bad because uh, I found them just really a, a lot of you know, good swashbuckling fun but with a lot of, uh, of great detail. It's, it's a real tour of, of the remarkable personalities of uh, the first 
three decades of the uh, 20th century. Yeah, this, uh, this is a show that I never really got to watch that much for, for one reason or another. I, maybe it just wasn't home uh, the, the nights it aired or something. But uh, yeah, very, very amazing attention to detail. That's something I always really appreciate. You know, if you're going to tackle history, you, you know, you should always try to do it right. And, you know, like we talked about, there's some creative liberties here and there because they're trying to get this, you know, great dynamic character in there. So, you know, they, they do it pretty well. Uh, the only uh, criticism I, I could have of these is how Lucas kind of changed them. But, you know, I think we're all pretty much used to him doing that with his work after the fact. So as far as tracking down certain moments or episodes, it might be a little more difficult than it used to be. But uh, these uh, box sets are definitely worth uh, picking up, uh, trying to find on Amazon. They're relatively cheap, right, Steve? Oh, absolutely. I mean, they, when I got this one, buying it used through Amazon Marketplace, it was all of eight and a half dollars. Oh, wow. And it's, you know, how many discs? I, I forget it, but it's it's a significant amount of programming. And when they released it, as I think I mentioned before, they didn't just release the episodes. They also produced, I think, a total of like 94 documentaries to accompany them. Mm. So with this one, there's also a uh, something like a 20-minute biography of Manfred von Richthofen. Wow. So they, I mean, they really, it, it was a quality product that they put out. Some of the episodes are a little bit slow, you know. You know, some have more adventure and some have less, but they're all interesting. As he goes through and he meets, you know, everyone from Howard Carter and T. E. Lawrence to um, Teddy Roosevelt, uh, Winston Churchill, uh, Sigmund Freud, Mata Hari. <laughs> um, you're just, just all of these huge, legendary figures from the first part of the last century. And the one thing that they that they do a very good job of is that he doesn't meet them at the peak of their career. He meets them before or after their peak. He meets yeah. Teddy Roosevelt when he's on uh, safari in Africa, not while he's president. He r- runs into them at different phases of uh, of their careers. It, it's a little bit more believable than you know the character that's always there just as history is being made. Right, yeah. It's a show that I really liked. And, and at some point, we may do another episode yeah. of it, because there's so much to be done with it. I just uh, I just looked at the box set that you uh, let me borrow for this, and uh, yeah, it's a nine-disc set. <laughs> it, it has 13 hours of special features alone. Yeah. These things are so dense, and they're just an eight-and-a-half box. Yeah, you get a lot for your money if, if anyone listening is uh, interested in uh, getting more out of these uh, episodes and the history behind them. You, you really uh, get a lot here with the, these complete box sets. So, yeah, definitely something to, to uh, look into because right now they're not really streaming on any of the major services, unfortunately. No, they were on Netflix for a while, but not there anymore. So, so what do you think, Scott? Am, am I forgiven for uh, Quark now? <laughs> You're forgiven for Quark, <laughs> and uh, next time we'll work on something that uh, redeems you for uh, Galactica 1980. That may take two two good episodes. <laughs> I don't think I don't think there's any. <laughs> yeah, there may not be. <laughs> uh. All right, well, that'll pretty much do it for this episode of Hitting Play. As always, you can email us with your comments, suggestions. Uh, what color your vehicle is, whatever you got for us at hittingplayshow at gmail.com, or you can talk to us on Twitter at hittingplay. Uh, Steve, you have anything you want to plug? 
Uh, well, as always, I no, nothing. Okay. <laughs> nothing. I get nothing. This is the apex of my life, really. <laughs> <laughs> you can always plug this episode. Absolutely. Listen to it again. Uh, I am on Twitter. My name there is at MC and Friends. You can follow me there. I am also on Instagram. There my name is MC underscore and underscore Friends. Uh, there I am moving all of my Vine animations, my flip page cartoons, and as well as some other uh, drawings and stuff that I do. So uh, follow me there. Uh, if you listen to us on iTunes, please subscribe and leave us a five-star review. It helps us out. And if you do, you will get a shout-out on the show. Uh, for Android users, we are also available to stream in or download on Stitcher. We can also be found on TuneIn Radio and the Google Play Music app, so you can check us out on those platforms. Also, if you have a, uh, a Roku device, you can download the uh, TuneIn Radio channel. You can set Hitting Play as a favorite. And as these episodes are posted, you can stream these episodes through your television. Well, we have been Steve and Scott, and this has been Hitting Play. Thank you so much for listening. It's a long way to Tipperary. (laughs) 